the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. A Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of high. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. God's inerrant, infallible word, our Holy Bible, stands as an eternal lighthouse in a decaying world. This worldwide independent radio ministry outreach of the Bible Stands is dedicated to the proclaiming of the great truths of Scripture for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here is our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're involved in a study of the Tower of Babel. The building of this infamous tower and city is recorded in the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis. Let's open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. The majority of the men and women of that early post-flood world population had chosen to follow Nimrod rather than the Lord. And in so choosing, they also chose to follow the evil spirit personality who empowered Nimrod, who was none other than Satan. The decision to follow Nimrod was the trigger for immediate action. The men of Babel straightway began the digging of clay, the molding and firing of bricks, the gathering of bitumen to cement the bricks together, and the construction of the perimeter wall, the public and private buildings, and the great tower which was to form the center of that world system that they had started to build. The complex was to be a center of world unity, built in the power of the flesh, not in the power of God. The unity that these men had achieved was just as synthetic as the building materials that they had chosen. Both the building stone and the unifying mortar chosen for building this city and tower, which were to stand symbolically for the world system that constructed them, fell far short of the quality of the genuine materials that God uses to develop true unity in his kingdom. Men and women who are regenerated to eternal life are living stones aptly fitted together. The true mortar that joins these living stones together to form the building of God is the unifying power of the Holy Spirit. But the rebels at Babel had neither of these things. They had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. The rebellion had been organized and the building was in progress. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. God was not unaware of the rebellion which was going on in the earth. God is omniscient. He knows all. He knew what was in the heart of Nimrod and the rebels who would follow him even before they came together in that decisive council. He knew of their rebellion even before he created the earth. It's not the intent of scripture to state that God suddenly discovered what these children of men were up to and that he instituted a quick countermeasure after he discovered the potential of the rebellion that was underway. That is not at all what we're to understand from the words written in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5. It is not the generic name for the triune God, Elohim, that's used to refer to God in these words. The name used is the sacred tetragrammaton, the four-letter word. The name used is the Lord, 
Jehovah, Yahweh. This name applies specifically and particularly to God in the person of God the Son, the seed of woman, the promised Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, or Yahweh, is the covenant name of God. This name refers to the person of God of whom that prophet Micah writes in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah refers to the second person of the Godhead. He says that this person of God is to be born as a man in the little village of Bethlehem of Judea. Yet this one will not begin to exist at the time of his birth. Even as he comes into the world as that little babe, he will be older than anything that exists in the created universe. He is the one whose goings forth, that is, his ministries, have been from of old, from the earliest history of the created earth, from everlasting, from eternity past, even before the creation of the universe. It's this person of God who is designated as Yahweh, and it's this person of God who's referred to as coming down to inspect the works of the children of men in Genesis chapter 11. It's this person of God into whose hands God the Father has delivered all judgment. And the inspection of the works of the rebels in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5 is a part of an act of judgment. We're faced with the fact that Scripture tells us that the Lord Jehovah came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Is this to be understood in a literal sense? Did God actually come down to earth in some literal way to inspect the progress of the great rebellion of men and to pass judgment on it? Yes, this passage of Scripture does teach that the Lord, Jehovah, literally came down to earth at the time of this great crisis in early post-flood world history. The Holy Spirit of God here speaks of Yahweh Elohim, the pre-incarnate Christ, in terms that reveal his nature as true man as well as a true God. It was Yahweh Elohim, Jesus the Christ, who physically walked in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the evening in those early days of earth's history before Adam's fall. It was Yahweh Elohim who personally stood before the fallen Adam in that garden paradise and said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. It was also Yahweh Elohim, the pre-incarnate Christ, who stood before Cain after the murder of Abel and said, and now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. It was once again God the Son, Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Christ, whom we find meditating and speaking in Genesis chapter 6, just before the great flood was sent to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, the humanity of the Son of God, into whose hands all judgment is delivered, is clearly revealed as we read these words. And it repented Jehovah that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And Jehovah said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, 
for it repenteth me that I've made them. The scriptural passage of Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5 is given to reveal the human qualities of our kinsman redeemer, who is also the judge over all of the earth. The humanity of our Lord brought him down from heaven in a personal visit of inspection upon the activities of the children of men before he brought about the judgment of the confusion of tongues. God, in the person of the Son, came down to the scene of the building of the city and the tower in visible form. He looked upon these works of men with the attributes of a man before he brought judgment. Theologians would call this visit a theophany. That word refers to an appearance of God in the presence of men and in the form of a man in the earthly sphere. We are to literally understand that Yahweh, the Son of God, did make a visit to the earth at the time of the rebellion at Babel. This visit of God the Son to the earth before the bringing of judgment upon a segment of mankind does not stand alone in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 18, we're told of the visit of three men to the tent of Abraham before the time of the birth of Isaac. In this chapter, one of the men is revealed to be Yahweh, God the Son. He had come down not only to speak face to face with Abraham and to tell him of the impending birth of Isaac, but he had also come to look out upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and to bring a judgment of fire upon those wicked cities. We have an exact parallel to this passage in Genesis chapter 11 when, speaking to Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, the Lord, Yahweh, said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. The one who speaks to Abraham is declared to be Yahweh, God. Yet he stands before Abraham in the form of a man, and he clearly reveals the attributes of his nature as a perfect man. He, as a man, was evaluating the work of men before he brought judgment. So when we read in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5 that Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded, we can paraphrase the words which the same one spoke to Abraham so many years later. Because of the cry of the rebels at Babel is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. When the Lord came down for his personal inspection, he found that the action of these men of the earth were ripe for judgment. As God, Yahweh, had known, even before he created the world, every detail of the rebellion of these sons of men. But as perfect man and as judge of all, Yahweh personally toured the building project before his judgment was poured out. The inspection of the perfect God-man confirmed the necessity for judgment. These rebels at Babel had followed Nimrod out from the presence of the Lord. They had decided to substitute another name rather than the name of Yahweh and Elohim as the object of their worship and devotion, and in so doing to break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from them. They had chosen not to retain God in their knowledge, and they had chosen to disobey his commands. They had no spiritual life. They had not placed their faith in God and in his promise of a coming Redeemer. They were not sons of God. Rather, they were only natural men living in the power of the flesh. They were, in every respect, the children of men. I see that my time is almost gone for today. 
We'll continue our study of the Tower of Babel on the next broadcast. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to come into your home or your car or your place of business with this message from God's Word. We're involved in a study of that historical incident of man's rebellion against God that's recorded in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. I call this study the Tower of Babel. Let's open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 11, verses 6 and seven. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. After the Lord had come down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded, the scriptural narrative for the second time in the book of Genesis, permits us to have the privilege of being a witness to an internal council of the triune Godhead. The first such internal council recorded in this book was found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, just before the record of the creation of man. There, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communed together as we read these words. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And now again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit commune together as they observe man whom they created, cooperating in a spiritual and physical building program designed to make them, the men, independent of their Creator. We're permitted to hear the voice of Jehovah, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as he speaks to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. And Jehovah said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their speech, that they may not understand one another's speech. The rebels of Babel had arrayed themselves together against the Lord in a unity made possible by the common language. The members of that relatively small post-flood world population felt self-sufficient and self-reliant. They'd found a leader in Nimrod. They no longer saw a need for the guidance and direction of Jehovah. Nimrod promised his followers material blessings through their cooperative efforts in the earth. Nimrod did not condemn the sins of the flesh. Nimrod taught men that they had no need for God, that they could find happiness, contentment, and satisfaction within themselves. He taught them that if men would only join together in a oneness of effort under his leadership, that nothing would be restrained from them. And in this, the Lord's words agree. And this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. These words of the Lord are not intended to specify that nothing in the earth or heaven would have been restrained from these rebels had they continued in their joint building venture. Rather, they indicate that nothing in the way of evil will be restrained from them if they are allowed to continue their course. In this passage, the Lord says, And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. 
To understand what's meant here, we have to go back to the Lord's words of Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21. There we read, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. These builders at Babel are called children of men, and the Lord had previously stated that the imagination of man's heart is totally evil. Here in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 6, it's what man will imagine to do that will not be restrained from him if the cooperative building venture is allowed to continue. Man was building a system of total evil. Only increased evil could possibly result if the children of men were allowed to continue. The post-blood earth faced a moral and a spiritual crisis. Only a judgment on the part of God himself could stop Satan from establishing his system of total evil in this world. The decision of the counsel of God was to take action against this city and tower which the children of men builded. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. The solution to the problem was to take away that gift of the common language which had made the rebellion possible. God had given the language to Adam and the language had been handed down to all generations, both of the pre-flood world and of the post-flood world. But from the moment of God's judgment onward, different branches of humanity would speak different languages. The ability for all mankind to cooperate in a common venture would be taken away the moment that the common language was taken away. This mass movement toward total apostasy, toward the total wickedness of paganism, could be held in check. Both the decision of God and the judgment of the Lord came suddenly and decisively. The voice of God used the same terminology to specify the decision and the need for immediate action as was earlier ascribed to the counsel of the leaders of the rebels. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. The us of this statement is the plural pronoun of the triune God. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united in sovereignty and united in action. The languages of men were to be confused. Although the scripture does not tell us the time of day that the change came about, most likely it was during the night while the majority of the people were asleep. The building effort of one day came to an end with all of the peoples of the project able to freely converse one with another. All of the families went to their respective place of private residence. They had their evening meal. They retired for the night. During the night, the change came. God distributed a multiplicity of languages to the various families represented in the Great Rebellion. These changes of tongue were total and complete. Each member of the same family was given a common tongue. When the families arose and began to go about the tasks of starting the new day, no one realized that anything had changed. God had seen to it that the language of the previous day had been totally forgotten and that the new language of that new day was completely familiar to all who shared that language. No one realized that any change had come about until after the workers left their private places of residence and came out to resume the building tasks. It was then that the surprise came to all. As the various workers began to speak to those with whom they had conversed only a few hours earlier, they were unable to make themselves understood. To the hearer, 
the one who was speaking seemed to be speaking in gibberish. When the one spoken to, with a slight touch of impatience, asked the speaker to please quit jabbering and to say something intelligible, the words that he spoke sounded like gibberish to the first speaker. No doubt temper soon flared as these kinds of exchanges were repeated over and over again among the various individuals which had come together to continue what had been a cooperative building venture. All of these men had grown up in a world that knew only one language. They were totally unacquainted with the idea that it was possible to have more than one language. But each individual thought that he was speaking the same tongue that he had spoken the day before. The unintelligible jabbering was being done by the other fellow. No doubt there were a number of fights among individuals, each of whom thought that the one to whom he was directing perfectly intelligent conversation was attempting to mock him and to make fun of him. Foreman could not make their instructions understood. It was impossible to continue the building project that had gone so smoothly the day before. In fact, it was impossible to trust any of those lunatics that went about jabbering in unintelligible gibberish rather than in a language which could be understood by men. Since the idea of multiple languages among men was something entirely foreign to the previous experience of those who had participated in the rebellion at Babel, and since God had acted suddenly, decisively, and without warning, like a thief in the night, it must have taken a long while, decades or even centuries, before any of those men of the early post-flood world had any inkling of what had happened. Each man there could find fellowship only with those with whom he could carry on a conversation. Without realizing the true source of the problem, and without having previously dealt with the concept of multiple languages among men, there is little likelihood that any attempt was made to try to learn more than one of the new languages which were being spoken. The reaction of the various heads of families would have been to gather their own families, the members of which could speak what was to them an intelligible human language about them, and to move away from that gathering of lunatics as fast as possible. So the various families immediately left off the building project that had been such a large part of Nimrod's rebellious plan. They gathered those whom they considered as still sane to them. They moved to a new spot on the global surface to set up a civilization and a culture of their own. This had been God's intent from the beginning of the history of the post-flood world when he had said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The confusion of tongues at Babel accomplished exactly what God intended it to accomplish. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build a city. It was the Lord, Jehovah, God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, into whose hands all judgment is delivered, who brought about the confusion of tongues at Babel. He thus accomplished the division of nations. This was a judgment of God. It was a judgment that has kept Satan from accomplishing his goal of bringing about a one-world system of government and a one-world religion under his own Antichrist all down through the centuries. Once again, I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of the Tower of Babel on the next broadcast. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stand. We're involved in a study of man's great rebellion at Babel. The record of this rebellion is found in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. I call this study the Tower of Babel. Let's open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build a city. 
Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The closing verse of Genesis chapter 10 told us, These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. The peoples of the post-flood world, after the incident at Babel, were divided along family lines. This fact tells us that when God changed the languages, there in that judgment at Babel, he assorted the new tongues so that members of the same immediate family spoke the same tongue. Thus, it was easy for the specific family groups to disperse over the habitable land areas of the post-flood world without the breaking of coast family ties and without the disruption of the basic family unit. The division of the peoples was a natural result of the confusion of tongues. Since every individual involved in this judgment thought that he was still speaking the same language that he had always spoken, each one felt that all of the other individuals outside of his own family unit had gone mad. The neighbors could no longer speak an intelligible language. They could only jabber in an incoherent way. No one in the earth previously had ever been exposed even to the concept of multiple languages. Everyone involved in this situation would have been thoroughly confused. There would have been no attempt on anyone's part to try to learn the language of a neighbor. No one even realized that the neighbor had a different language. The unintelligible sounds that came from one of a different language would have been interpreted as madness or as mockery to all who did not understand that particular language. The result of the change of languages was total confusion of any communication that was attempted outside of the individual family unit. No doubt, there were probably not more than a few days that passed before each family leader came to the conclusion that he and his family should place as much distance between themselves and those other madmen as they possibly could. And so the dispersion of nations took place. Each family went its own way to find a land in which they could settle down and establish a permanent home separated from the babble of those other men of the world who had suddenly lost their sanity and they left off to build a city. Nimrod's great building project could not continue. He could not even make himself understood by the majority of those men who had formerly been his subjects. To the people of a different language from Nimrod, he was just as mad as everyone else. They could no longer follow a man who had no ability to speak intelligibly. It was far better to follow a leader from one's own family group. At least the family head still had the power of speech and the power of understanding. Nimrod's dream of a one-world political system with a one-world pagan religion, having himself and his wife Semiramis as heads, was totally shattered. No longer was he capable of leading all the people of the world. Of course, the confusion of languages did not stop Nimrod from continuing to build his empire. He lost his control over all the peoples of the world after God's confusion of the tongues, but there were still a sizable number of men and women of his own family branch who did speak the same language as Nimrod. With these people as followers, Nimrod continued to build his empire. Both the scripture passage of Genesis chapter 10 verses 8 through 12 and secular history testifies to the fact that Nimrod did build a sizable empire in the early post-flood world. 
both the ancient empire of the Babylonians and the ancient empire of the Assyrians were built by this archapostate, this mighty hunter, this rebel against the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. Out of that land he went forth into Assyria, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth, and Cala, and Reson, between Nineveh and Cala. The same is a great city. Nimrod's ambition to build a world empire, of which all men of the earth would be subjects, was thwarted by God's judgment. But Nimrod's ambition to build the empire was not. He did build the most powerful of the empires of the ancient world. Both the political ideas and the pagan religious system that he established are still prevalent in the world today. Even within the ranks of professing Christianity, there is still a great deal of the Babylonian paganism of Nimrod. Babylon has not yet been destroyed. Therefore the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The word Babel comes from a root that means to confuse or to mingle. It was the building project of Nimrod, the city and the tower, and all of the political and religious plans that stood behind this project that is here referred to as Babel. It was Satan's world system, a system that is nothing but confusion. Truth and light and purpose and direction are found only in the true and living God and in his word. When the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, was here during his earthly ministry, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only truth, the only non-confusion lies in him. The world empire of Nimrod was to have been the earthly kingdom of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Every aspect of it is confusion, and every aspect of it is satanic. Satan has continued on down through history to try to build the world kingdom, that world system over which he, through the medium of his antichrist, can hold totalitarian control. His ambition and his purposes have not changed. It's been difficult to bring the peoples of the world together in a system of absolute totalitarianism because of the multiplicity of the languages spoken. There has been only one time in history that God temporarily lifted the judgment of multiple languages that he imposed there at Babel. That was on the day of Pentecost when the Lord sent his Holy Spirit to baptize all believers into the one body, his church. On that day, the restrictions of multiple languages were divinely overcome, and all present were able to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed in words that they could understand spoken by those apostles who had never learned the languages of the hearers. The multiple languages of the world which stood as an obstacle to the spread of the gospel during the first century world were, in effect, neutralized by God's miraculous gift to those who were his chosen vessels. God provided a gift of tongues so that the marvelous message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ could be proclaimed to all men in their own languages. It's only in our day that men have found a way to themselves partially overcome the obstacle of the multiple tongues present in the world ever since God's judgment at Babel. The technology of complex electronics has made possible the vast intercommunication system of the United Nations where a representative of one nation can speak in his native language and have that speech 
instantly relayed to translators in isolated booths who transmit the speech to all of the groups present in their respective languages. In this way, many of the different tongues are able to hear the speaker and to understand his words. There's only a few seconds time delay in the entire process. This mass effort to overcome God's judgment at Babel is once again being used by Satan to try to organize all men of the world into a one-world political and religious system just as he used the common language of the early post-flood world so many centuries ago. It looks as though this time he will succeed. There at Babel, God confounded the languages to thwart Satan's purpose. The confusion of tongues prevented a total confusion of the world population. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the languages of all the earth. The languages were confounded, the peoples were divided, and the dispersion of the nations began. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The scripture says that it was from thence, from that time, that the Lord scattered the people abroad over the face of the entire globe. The Lord's original commandment for the population of the post-flood earth was, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Satan's intent was that men not spread out over the face of the globe to fill the earth, but rather that they be grouped together into a one-world political system under the authority of his Antichrist. But God's confusion of the tongues stopped that early movement towards satanic unity in the earth. The multiple languages of Babel have continued with post-flood world mankind until this day. The language barrier has always stood in Satan's way as he, through the ages, has tried to succeed with his ambitions for a one-world empire. But in our day, it appears that modern electronics is going to let him at last succeed in uniting the world into a godless empire. It would seem that we are very close to the end of this age. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll complete our study of the Tower of Babel on the next broadcast. I'm so glad of this opportunity to come into your home with another broadcast of the Bible Stands. Today we'll conclude our study of man's great rebellion against God there on the plain of Shinar in the Mesopotamian Valley. I call this study the Tower of Babel. The record of the building of the Tower of Babel and the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom is contained in Genesis chapter 11. However, the end of this kingdom is not found in the book of Genesis. It's found in the book of Revelation. Let's read Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The historical record of Genesis chapter 11 indicates that three motives stood behind the building of the Tower of Babel. First, this tower was intended as a symbol lifted up in pride, a monument to the accomplishments of man. Second, it was to have been a patriotic focal point erected as a determined effort to accomplish Nimrod's objectives which were to keep all people together under his leadership to serve his desires. Nimrod wanted a one-world political system. The great tower was intended as a central control point to secure and maintain world peace apart from the rule of God. Third, the tower was a symbol of defiance to God and to the powers of heaven. God had said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they said, Go to, 
Let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The judgment of God on this effort of man also appears to have been threefold. Rebellious man was brought down by the omnipotent power of God. The people who had unified themselves for this organized rebellion were scattered and divided. The tower builders were left in shame and confusion. The tower builders were looking for their own man-made name for deity, deity to whom worship was to be directed. The name of this man-made deity was to stand in opposition to the name of Jehovah. Nimrod was their leader, and as leader of this rebellion, he was the father of Babylonian paganism. Babylonian paganism is the root source of all paganism. Nimrod was the father of all paganism, and after his death, he was deified as the father of the gods. The religion of astrology is traceable back to the rebellion at Babel. Nimrod, or Ninus, as he was known in the Babylonian records, was deified as Marduk. Later, Marduk of the Babylonians became Zeus of the Greeks and Jupiter of the Romans. God had originally created men. At the rebellion at Babel, men had decided to create their own gods. The gods created by men shared man's fallen nature. These gods did not condemn sin and evil. Rather, they shared man's desire for such indulgences. The god creators would let men seek salvation by the works of their own hands rather than by faith in the true and living God and in his promise of a kinsman redeemer. The gods of man's creation would let man go his own way, satisfying his need for spiritual fulfillment by the debased worship of demon spirits. These spirits were only too happy to stand behind the name of deity which man had created. The Lord said that this movement at Babel was the running start of the total ruin of mankind, and this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. These words of the Lord do not mean that the rebels at Babel could actually succeed in wresting the created earth out of God's hands by their organized movement into one world paganism. It does not mean that they could become supermen, capable of accomplishing anything they set out to do. It's within the realm of evil and perverseness that nothing would be restrained from man if he were to continue in the path which he had chosen. There was nothing in the way of evil that would be restrained from man if he were allowed to go on in his organized rebellion against the authority and sovereignty of God. Nimrod's purpose was defeated by God's judgment at Babel, but the energizing personality behind Nimrod has not lost his sense of direction or his purpose. Ever since the incident at the Tower of Babel, Satan has continued to struggle to establish a one-world, evil, godless system under his own direct control. At several times in the past, God has permitted him to almost succeed. The very nation originally founded by Nimrod did become a world empire under Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. God's chosen people of the southern kingdom of Judah were carried off into captivity by this great world power. But after about 70 years of reign, Babylon, the empire, fell to another world power, Medo-Persia. And under this second world system, God's people were allowed to return to their homeland. The Medo-Persian empire destroyed the imperial power of historical Babylon, but it did not destroy the political, cultural, and the religious system that was true Babylon. 
This system was simply absorbed by the Medes and the Persians. Then, when the Medo-Persian Empire fell to the Greeks under Alexander the Great in 336 B.C., the Babylonian system again was not destroyed, but only absorbed. Also, when Imperial Rome completed her world conquest of the Greek system in about 50 B.C., the system was not destroyed. Rome became Babylon under a different name. Imperial Rome was never conquered, but the empire simply crumbled into many smaller nations which were distributed across Europe, Asia, and Northern Africa. Even in the breaking up of the Roman Empire, the Babylonian system that was Imperial Rome did not die. It's very much present in the fragments of Rome that have existed over these many centuries since the great empire crumbled. And biblical prophecy assures us that these fragments are to be once again integrated into a world empire stronger than any such empire that has ever existed to date. Satan will rule that empire through a great world dictator, that one whom Revelation chapter 13 simply designates as the beast. We have an organization in the world today that represents the attempt of the prince of this world to restore a godless order and a godless one world system of imperial government, that is, a Babylonian system to this world. The headquarters of this system stands in our own New York City. It would seem that the world is approaching that time when Satan will at last accomplish what he tried to do at the time of the building of the Tower of Babel. The scriptures foretell that he will be successful in this effort toward the end of this present age. There will exist in the last days, just before the second coming of Christ, a world kingdom with one supreme antichrist ruler. All nations of the world will be under his dictatorial power to the extent that there will be no buying or selling without his mark. Just as the organization at the Tower of Babel was to compete against heaven, so will this kingdom. Its ruler will claim to be God, just as Nimrod claimed to be divine, and he will demand to be worshipped. The end-time kingdom will be constructed around the worship of this man. This state of affairs will be brought into existence by a great religious leader, a false prophet, who will rise to power as the head of a one-world religious system that will claim to be a Christian church. Thus, the two aspects of the Babylonian system, the one-world political system and the one-world system of heathen worship, are not dead. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 10 tells us that the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. There's no mention anywhere in the book of Genesis of any end to this rebellious kingdom. In fact, to find the end of Nimrod's kingdom, we have to turn all the way back to the 17th and 18th chapters of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 17 describes the end of religious or ecclesiastical Babylon. Revelation chapter 18 is the record of the end of political Babylon. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8 provides a preview of the record of these two falls. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The end of Nimrod's kingdom is still future, even from our standpoint. Nimrod's kingdom has never died. It's been retarded. Sometimes in history it's been even weakened. But it has never ended. And it was very much alive in that scene on the plain of Dura, recorded in Daniel chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar the king erected an image to be worshipped by all of his empire. It is very much alive today. Ecclesiastical and political Babylon are to play a significant part in end-time events. However, both aspects of Babylon are to be crushed at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Genesis chapter 10 and verse 10, we read of Nimrod, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The end of his kingdom is found in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 2. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Once again, my time is almost gone. It's been a great blessing to me to bring you this series of messages on the Tower of Babel. I'll return on the next broadcast with another series of messages from God's Word. The Bible stands and it will forever when the world has passed away. You've been listening to The Bible Stands, an independent faith ministry conducted as a worldwide radio missionary outreach by Bible expositor Wayne Carver. This program is dedicated to the upholding of the doctrines of the full verbal inspiration, the total inerrancy, and the absolute authority of the Holy Bible. The messages presented each day are available on cassette tape to those who support this ministry with their tax-deductible gifts and offerings. The Bible Stands is totally dependent upon the contributions of our radio listeners for its continuance on your station. You are invited to send your gifts and offerings, your request for cassette tapes, and your Bible questions to Wayne Carver in care of the Bible Stands radio broadcast. The Bible Stands is a faith ministry totally dependent upon the financial support of God's people for its continuing outreach. The program is sponsored by the Bible Stands radio broadcast, 6510 Spring Roads, San Antonio, Texas, 78249.